Thank you, Miss Chris. Well, again, I want to welcome you to Church of the Valley. Thanks for joining us today and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, we've been walking through the Gospel of John as a church, which is why we find ourselves today in John chapter 10. And what we're going to discover today is John chapter 10 is all about Jesus being the good shepherd. And Jesus has come to give us the abundant life. And what we're going to see in this passage today is that Jesus is the good shepherd who is victorious over death and has the roadmap to lead us to eternal life and to an eternal hope. Now, I want you to imagine this morning as you walked in the lobby that I were to come up to you and I declared myself this morning to be a good friend. Imagine I walk up to you and I say, hi, my name is Justin. I'm a good friend. And in doing so, my hope would be is that I'm desiring for you to know me as a good friend and to put my claim to test. For me to claim that I'm a good friend is an invitation into relationship. What I'm doing in this moment is inviting you to know my character and to test whether or not I'm truly a good friend. Or let's say I were to come up to you and say, hi, my name is Justin, and I'm a good cook. That information would be absolutely useless unless I was inviting you over for dinner to come and put that claim to test. Now, I can assure you, I'm not a great cook. Unless it has anything to do with cooking outdoors, all right? Anybody got something ready to cook outdoors today? Come on, anybody? Nobody smoked any, like, brisket? How we know Jesus loves us is that he invented cows, okay? That's how we know. All right, amen. Some men are with me here, right? Um, outdoor cooking is about the only cooking that I can uh, claim to be good at. Other than that, um, I can't help you. But if I were to say I'm a good cook, I would say you, you'd be like, hey, I want to take you up on that. I want to experience that, right? If I were to go to my kids and say, I'm a good dad, I expect them to test me on it. I expect them to take full ownership of them knowing me as a good dad and receive the privileges of being one of my children. And so the question I have for us this morning as we look at this passage is what would it look like for us to take full ownership of knowing Jesus as our good shepherd and receive the privileges of being one of his sheep? Now, if, if Jesus and he offers us the abundant life in John 10.10, 10, if this is what leads to experiencing the abundant life is knowing him as good shepherd and being one of his sheep, the question is, is how do we put this claim of Jesus to test and know him in that way? Charles Spurgeon, the old school pastor from the 1800s, said this. This passage should encourage you and me to get full hold of the word. If Jesus is so pleased to be my shepherd, let me be equally pleased to be his sheep. And let me avail myself of all the privileges that are wrapped up in him being my shepherd and in my being his sheep. I see that it will not worry him for me to be a sheep. 
I see that my needs will cause him no perplexity. I see that he will not be going out of his way to attend to my weakness and trouble. He delights to dwell on the fact I am the good shepherd. And he invites me as it were to come and bring my wants and woes to him and then look up to him and be fed by him. Therefore, I will do it. Will you do it this morning? And how do we do it this morning? How do we come to know Jesus as our good shepherd. Well, let's read starting in John chapter 10, verse 11. It says, I am the good shepherd. Here Jesus introduces himself. He's inviting us to know him as the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now it's actually going to mention this five times in this passage that Jesus is going to lay his life down. He's going to lay his life down. One of the privileges of knowing Jesus as good shepherd is experiencing his love for us as someone Jesus lays down his life for his friends. He lays down his life for us. And this shows and illustrates the depth that Jesus will go to demonstrate his love and care for us. In fact, this is emphasized at the beginning of chapter 10, verse 18. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Now that's important because Jesus is not just the victim of human conspiracies. He was not a martyr whose life just ended in tragedy. He obediently participates in the plan of God. And this isn't merely about being obedient to God, although he was walking in obedience, nor was it about Jesus' personal honor or achievement, like, look what I do, like, look what I can accomplish. I will lay down my life. Rather, Jesus is willing to die because he has a profound commitment to the people that he loves, his sheep. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter five, Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. Jesus demonstrates his love and care for us as the good shepherd by being willing to lay down his life. Now, it might strike you as odd, and maybe you're here this morning, and as I begin to process this passage, I begin to think, why in the world do we need Jesus to lay down his life for us? In this idea of understanding Jesus as the good shepherd and us as the sheep, uh, we see that sheep can easily come under attack, that they're vulnerable creatures. They have no way of defending themselves. They need a shepherd to oversee them and to protect them and to care for them. And for us, we can kind of begin to live our life as, in, as if we're not in any imminent danger. I don't feel like there's any threats out for my life. I'm not necessarily concerned of being attacked. And here's what I would tell you this morning. This is exactly where the enemy wants you to be. Not seeing your life as under attack, not seeing your life as, as some, in a place of danger, not seeing any threats that are seeking to take your life. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it tells us to be sober-minded, to be watchful, all right? So if we're going to be sober-minded, we need to be watchful, we need to be vigilant against what? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Here's the deal. The enemy wants you to forget that there's, hey, 
There's no threats out there. There's nothing to be concerned about. There's nothing out to attack your life. He doesn't want you to be vigilant. And here's what I would say. If Jesus is our good shepherd, we're his sheep. As sheep, we are vulnerable. And we need to understand that Jesus is going to lay down his life to protect us, to save us, and to overcome our greatest fear, or the fear of death. John Eldridge says this, you live in a world at war. How often do we believe that? Do we believe we're in a war? You live in a world at war. Spiritual attack must be a category you think in or you will misunderstand more than half of what happens. Here's what I tell you this morning. Friends, listen, you have an enemy. You have an enemy. God loves you and has a plan for your life. Satan hates you and he's out to destroy your life. You might ask today, why are we in such danger? Why is it that, that, that we are, are threatened? Why is it that we have such an enemy that seeks to destroy our life? Well, the danger that you and I live in is the danger of sin and the consequences of sin is death. And the Bible clearly teaches that all of sin, none of us are, are above that. None of us uh, you know, get to skip over and like, hey, we're immune to sin. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And rather than us experiencing the death that we deserve, Jesus is going to experience death for us and lay down his life to give us abundant life, eternal life in the kingdom of God. And what, what Jesus is simply saying in doing so, he's saying you can never defeat sin on your own. You can never be, the fact that we need a good shepherd, the fact that we need someone to protect us, that we need someone to help us enter into this abundant life says there is no way that we can defeat sin on our own. There's only one way to defeat sin and it's Jesus. When we look up in verse seven in chapter 10, it talks about Jesus being the door. And Jesus talks about being a door to the sheepfold. And he says, if anyone wants to enter in, if anyone wants to come in to the kingdom of God, if anyone wants to go from here, earth, and go to there, the kingdom of God in heaven, if anyone wants to go in, he must enter through the door, which is Jesus. There is no way of defeating sin, Satan, and death unless we come through the door, that which is Jesus, and receive him as our savior, we need a door. We need a door. Jesus has already surfaced that there are people who try to come in another way and they're thieves and robbers. There is one way. There is one way to be made right with God and that's through Jesus. I'm sure that there are some who believe, you know, I don't necessarily need a good shepherd. I think I can handle it on my own. I think maybe, maybe there is another way. Maybe if I just, if I don't sin that much, then, then maybe I'll be good. Maybe I can come before a holy God, which is ultimately minimizing the holiness of God and minimizing our sin. The fact that we believe we can come before a holy God on our own. The fact that we believe there is another way. And let me ask you a question this morning. Don't you believe if there was another way that Jesus would have asked that? In fact, he did. Jesus asked, he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, if there is any other way, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. There was no other way. It's the only way to get from here to there. Jesus has come to give us abundant life, to present us holy and blameless. And this was the destined plan, the predestined plan of God from all, all along. 
from eternity past, Jesus came to die. Jesus was born to die and lay down his life for the sheep. The cross was the center of God's will for Jesus. Acts chapter 2 verse 23, it says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. His death was not an accident. His death was not, his life was not taken from him. He laid it down. Long ago, way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, right there at the beginning of God's word, we see in Genesis Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when sin enters into the world, here God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And he's talking to the serpent. He's talking to the enemy. And he says, there's going to come a day where you're going to bruise Jesus. You're going to bruise my offspring. And Jesus is going to crush your head. It was to foresee what was going to happen on the cross. Jesus laid down his life. It wasn't taken. He is the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Here's what I want you to hear. He didn't come as just a good teacher. Some of us want to hear this morning. We want to accept him. Hey, he's a great teacher. He's a good religious leader. He, he, he's a miracle worker. He's a great teacher. No, listen, he came for one thing. He came to lay down his life. Jesus came to save sinners from sins by laying down their life. And I want to show you how this is his plan from all along to strengthen your faith. I can't tell you how many people I meet who are trying and attempting to clean up their life. They're trying to go, hey, you know what? I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get things right before coming to Jesus. How many people try and avoid Jesus and they, they attempt to be holy and blameless on their own. When in reality, the fact that Jesus came, and that's the very purpose in which he came, means we can't do it. We can't get in the sheepfold unless we go through the door, that which is Jesus. He is the only shepherd that can lead us to abundant life. Not only that, but if his life is taken, it's not truly an act of love. If his life is taken, it's not truly an act of love. He willingly submitted his life to the cross. He laid down his life for his friends. Now, let me illustrate this in a way that maybe you'll understand. I've used this example illustration before, but there was a time many years ago, I had a 1955 Chevrolet pickup. It was awesome. It was awesome. It's, uh, I got this pickup about a year before... Amber and I were, were engaged to be married. And uh, I, I found this old 1955 Chevrolet pickup. It needed some work. It was a work of art. It was flat black. It had a wooden bed in the back. The gas tank was behind the seat. And crazy enough, when you turn the ignition off, it would keep running. And, uh, and sometimes that was an embarrassment uh, because it would kind of just chug and keep running, and then eventually uh, it would stop. But I loved the nostalgia of this old pickup. And we would drive this, anybody drive, like go hang out at Sonic back in the day? Come on. All right, a few of you. Before we found out that like a big soda will kill you, all right? Um, we used to do that. These were the good old days, right? We would drive up on a Friday night, and we'd sit there, we'd get a large Coke. It was heaven on earth. And it came time that I was decided, hey, I'm gonna spend the rest of my life with this woman, okay? And I'm gonna need some funds to be able to purchase a ring. And the way the story goes is I decided I was gonna sell this truck and take those funds 
and I'm going to purchase a ring. So that's exactly what I did. Now, you, you, you hear that story and you're like, man, that totally demonstrates your love for her. You were willing to lay down your truck for the love of your life, right? Awesome. Now, let's say, come to find out, that is the story, by the way, but come to find out, let's say, I didn't actually sell the truck to purchase the ring, but I was forced to sell the truck because my parents were tired of storing it in their driveway. And they're like, hey, son, uh, you're going to have to take the truck. You're going to have to get rid of the truck. It's not staying in our driveway anymore. And I'm like, well, I, I really love the truck. And they're like, nope, you got to sell the truck. You got to get rid of the truck. And so it wasn't out of a position or posture of love, but out of a position of coercion. I didn't want to sell the truck, but I had to sell the truck. And I might as well put those funds to good use. So let's invest in a ring. And if that's the story, here's the deal, guys. You better keep that to yourself. All right. See, Jesus wasn't coerced. Jesus wasn't forced. Jesus wasn't pressed to give up his life. He willingly laid it down out of love for you. That communicates a ton. God's not disappointed with you. God's not frustrated with you. That Jesus would go to the cross, that this would set God's plan in motion. And he does this to bring us into life with God. But not only that, not only does he lay down his life for the sheep, but he's also going to reveal false shepherds in the midst of that. In John chapter 10, verse 12 through 14, it says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming. He sees the threat coming. And what does he do? He leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. Here's the thing. False shepherds are in it for the pay, not for the sheep. False shepherds love their life more than the sheep. Jesus loves the sheep more than his life. He is good. He's the good shepherd. He doesn't abandon us when threats surface. When the crucifixion comes. He doesn't run. He's willingly facing the cross out of love for you. And here's what I would tell you this morning. All other shepherds, all other shepherds, all other things that we can seek to put our trust in, that we're looking to guide us, that we're looking to save us, all other shepherds will abandon you when trouble comes. In Isaiah 57, 13, it's talked about this idea of, of false shepherds and this idea of looking to other things to save you. It says this, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. And you can add in whatever things that you're looking. Idols are many ways shepherds. They're things we're looking to save us from whatever coming attack. We're looking, we can resort to our money. We can resort to our job. We can resort to our, our strength. We can resort to our power. You can throw in anything in the blank here. And he says, let your collection of whatever seek to deliver you other than God, the shepherd, the good shepherd. The wind will carry them all off. Can't even stand against the wind. 
A breath will take them away, but he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Here's what I want you to hear. There is no other shepherd other than the good shepherd sitting at the right hand of God. There is no other shepherd but the good shepherd who's gotten up from the grave. There is no other shepherd but the good shepherd who has defeated defeated Satan's sin and death. There is no other shepherd but the good shepherd who has existed from eternity past. There is no other shepherd but the good shepherd who opens the eyes of the blind. There is no other shepherd but the good shepherd who walks on water. There is no other shepherd but the good shepherd who commands the storm to stop and it listens. He is the good shepherd. Not only is he a good shepherd, he's a strong shepherd. I, I, I read this in a commentary a few weeks ago. It says, many people in the industrialized West are inclined to think of shepherds as sentimental beings with their arms full of cuddly lambs. And we get this picture of this shepherd of just cuddling a lamb. And here's what I want you to see. Jesus is both meek and violent. Jesus is meek and violent. Jesus holds these two tensions. We see this in the gospel, that Jesus is gentle with the man Nicodemus, but he rages against the Pharisees. Jesus is is meek in the sense that he loves you and desires for you to come into relationship, but he's violent when anything comes against him or comes against you to attack you or take down your life. He lays down his life for you because something or someone is coming against that which he loves and he's gonna defend it at all cost. Being a shepherd is not a sign of weakness, but it would be a sign of weakness to those who stood alongside. You can imagine him having this conversation with the Pharisees and over and over and over again, he says he's gonna lay down his life. He's gonna lay down his life. He's gonna lay down his life. And this would be a stumbling block because it doesn't appear to be strong. In 1 Corinthians 1, 23, 25, it says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Jesus is meek and violent. Jesus is a soldier. Jesus is going to protect and lay down his life at all cost. He's not distracted in civilian affairs. Jesus has a mission to fulfill, lay down his life for the sheep. Not only that, not only do we come in to know him as one who lays down his life, but we come to the good shepherd and he invites us to know him and to be known. He invites us to know him and to be known. In John chapter 10, verse 14, it says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Now, right there out of the gates, if if this verse were to stop, that would be very significant. The fact that we're known by the good shepherd and the good shepherd knows us is awesome. But not only that, the passage keeps going and it tells us to what extent does he know us? Just as the father knows me and I know the father. Now here's the thing. How long has God the father and God the son, Jesus, been together? Forever. Forever. They are intimately known by one another. And it says, just as I know the Father and the Father knows me, that's how he knows the sheep. 
One of the most fundamental and universal desires in the world is to be known. It's to be known. To be known, to be something, to to be seen, to be experienced as, as someone who is significant. I heard this quote this past week and it It says, we all know there is someone we want to be, but we can't be it because of sin. It's called the glory deficit. There is a deficit in our life that only God can fill. We all want to be someone. We all want to be known by someone. We all want to be significant to someone. And we all know that that if we, we long for that, but we can't be it because of sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. We want to make an impact. We want fame. We want to be great. But because of sin, we fall short. We live for the applause of others. When in reality, many times people don't know the deep down struggles that we're walking through. And so we present and put forward a facade of our real life. No one truly knows us. But here's the passage. And here's what's great about this. Is that Jesus comes and fulfills that deep longing in our life. For you to be known. To be intimately known. And here's the thing, we don't have to put a facade forward. We don't have to put something in front to appear to be holier. He knows you in all of your sin and all of your flaws. And in the midst of that, he still comes and lays down his life for you. Ephesians chapter two, four through five. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Here's the deal. He doesn't love you when you get all your life in order together, everything's squared away. Hey, we're good. He loves you even when you were dead in your trespasses. He made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It is a gift. It is nothing we've earned, nothing that we've deserved. It is total gift. And Jesus makes it possible for us in that moment to be known and to be known by Jesus himself. And here's what I would tell you, there's no greater knowing than being known by Jesus. He knows us, he leads us, he loves us, he protects us. So what does he know? Here's what I would encourage you with. He knows you. He knows your age, he knows your name, he knows the number of hairs on your head or how little hairs are on your head. Like a good shepherd to a sheep, he knows those that are sick, those that are worried, those that are malnourished, those who have feelings of fears, feelings of fear, frights, scared. He knows your trials. He knows your difficulties. He knows what is weighing you down. He knows your sin. You're like, man, that's not good, right? No, he knew them when he died for you. You've been fully accepted. He didn't choose you because he was unaware He purchased us in our flaws. And some of us go, man, I think it's impossible. He may know me that way, but it's impossible to know Christ on that level. But there are numerous scriptures that tell us he can be known. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 29. I don't think these are on the screen. I'll just read these to you. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. Is that, is that what it looks like for us to seek after the Lord? The word seek there literally means to beat a path. 
you know, you can imagine at one time all, in all these mountains out here, there were not these trailheads that we could go and run. But over time, as we trample, as we frequent that, as we come to that path once over and over and over again, eventually it treads a path, it beats a path. And what this passage is saying is that if we look for the Lord that way, if we have such consistency in seeking him and seeking him and seeking him, this is an accurate picture of what it means to pursue Jesus. And many of us are not even looking. But the promise is this, if we seek with all our heart, we'll find him. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all my heart. Matthew 7, 7 through 8, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For whoever asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. Acts 17, 27, God did this so men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. And I, I could keep going. And here's what I would tell you this morning is, are you known by Jesus? Man, he wants to know you. And do you know Jesus? And what I love about this passage is, is that he also says that there's other sheep that he wants to bring in. In John chapter 10, verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Here's what he's saying. He wants to bring others into this relationship of knowing him and being known by him. Maybe you're here this morning and you were invited by someone and you're like, why in the world would we you know, want to so desperately invite you to come and participate? And ultimately, it's because Jesus is saying, there are sheep that are not of this fold and Jesus wants to know you. Jesus wants to know people. He wants them to hear his voice so they can flourish and they can have the abundant life that he offers. So we want to be a church and we want to be a people that lead others to the good shepherd. He must bring them in. No other person can bring them in. He must bring them in. And lastly, to know the good shepherd would be to see him as the good shepherd defeats death. The good shepherd defeats death. In John chapter 10, verse 17 through 18, it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Here we see shadows of the resurrection. Jesus is saying, I'm going to lay down my life, but just as I have the power to lay down my life, I also have the power to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. See, here's what's, what's a tragedy. When we think about having a shepherd and sheep, if a shepherd loses his life defending the sheep, then ultimately what happens to the sheep? The sheep are left vulnerable. The sheep are left. Yes, it, the, the shepherd may have went after and stopped the, you know, the oncoming threat. The, the, the shepherd goes out and lays down his life and protects the sheep. But what makes him the good shepherd is not only is he able to come and defend and protect and to lay down his life to protect the sheep once, but he's going to take his life up again and continually be our shepherd. See, John Piper says this, Christianity is not merely being saved from sin, death, and judgment. It also means we have a living shepherd, 
a living shepherd. The good shepherd is a living shepherd to guide you and feed you and heal you and protect you and help you love. Jesus took his life back again, up from the grave, from death, so that we might have this kind of personal relationship with him. All of us, all of us, at one time or another, fear, have feared or currently fear death. There was an interview a while back with Steve Jobs when talking about death and his thoughts on hope and afterlife. If you don't know who Steve Jobs is, creator of Apple. And uh, he said, I like to think that something survives after you die. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and maybe a little wisdom and it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives, that maybe your consciousness endures. But on the other hand, perhaps it's like an on-off switch. Click and you're gone. Maybe that's why I never liked putting on-off switches on Apple devices. Why didn't someone tell Steve Jobs that death doesn't have to be the end? Jesus rose. He has defeated death. And what this passage reminds us is that the greatest miracle of all time rescues us from death and now offers us eternal life. He can lead you to eternal life. Wherever you feel like your life it, it is in the grave, it no longer has to remain in the grave. The same power that rose Christ Jesus from the grave now lives inside every one of his sheep. Romans chapter eight, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse five through seven. He was truly alive, folks. Here's the thing. It would have been easy on that resurrection Sunday when everyone's claiming that Jesus is alive for the emperor to go and get the dead body of Jesus and present it and say, what are you claiming? How do you claim? Here he is. He is dead, but no one could present the body. Why? Because Jesus is alive. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, five through seven, we read that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, talking about the time in which this passage was written, though some have fallen asleep. Why is that important? Because you can't claim that 500 people saw the resurrected Christ unless you can go to those 500 people and say like, hey, many of whom are still alive. You can go and ask. We saw him. Acts chapter one, three through six, it says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God and while staying with them, and the word staying actually means eating with them. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. So Jesus presents himself alive. He, he speaks to them. He eats with them. He stays with them. Jesus is alive. Jesus presents himself by many proofs. And what Jesus is doing when he gets up from the grave is he's saying, you can have that type of resurrection life. We read in John chapter 10, verse 10, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And what Jesus comes to offer is exactly the opposite of that. The opposite of stealing is giving freely. 
Jesus gives you life freely. The opposite of killing is he comes to save lives. The opposite of destroying is to repair what is broken. Here's what I want to hear. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. Your life is, is not too broken for God to repair. Your problem is not too big for God. What in your life needs the resurrection power of Jesus? You need to name it. You need to write it out. Maybe you think your problem's too big. It's definitely not because the one who is your good shepherd has defeated death. He has done it. In Psalm 22, I'd encourage you to go back and read it sometime, but Psalm 22, almost a thousand years before the crucifixion, David, inspired by, by, by God, writes Psalm 22 that so clearly depicts what Jesus faced on the cross. And it seemed like in a moment that there was darkness, that there were shadows of death. There seemed that there was no hope. But then the psalm transitions. And in that, hope shines through. And at the very end of the passage, it says, we will proclaim of his righteousness that he has done it. Righteousness is the result of him having done something. He's done something. What has he done? Well, in John chapter 19, verse 30, it says, when Jesus had received sour wine at the end of his crucifixion, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. What's finished? What does it mean it is finished? This is the, the Greek word to telestai. It means to be paid in full. For Jesus to lay down his life for the forgiveness of sins and to take it up again tells us that Jesus' payment was sufficient. That your sins have been paid in full. We owed a debt we could never pay. Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. But here, his empty tomb and his resurrection are indisputable testimony to the fact that the father accepted his son's payment for sin on our behalf as our substitute. Thus, tetelestai is not the cry of defeat of a dying man, but a cry of triumph of a living, life-giving redeemer, the good shepherd who lays down his life and takes it up again. He takes it up again. On the cross of Jesus, full and final payment of your sin was nailed to the cross. Here's what I want us to believe and know and fully submit ourselves to this morning. We live as if we serve a living king, a living Christ. We have a living good shepherd. He laid down his life only to pick it back up again. So the question is, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? How, how do we respond? Imagine Jesus proclaiming this to us, that he's the good shepherd, that he's going to lay down his life and he's going to take it up again and, and just wonder how many of us would respond. And I think that's the, cr the crucial question for each of us this morning is how do we respond to this? When John chapter 10, verse 19 through 21, it says, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. What words? The words that Jesus just proclaimed, that he's going to lay down his life and he's going to take it up again. 
And people are like, I don't know if that's really true. Like there's a division that occurs. And there was a division among the Jews because of these words. And many of them said, he has a demon and he's insane, right? It's easy to demonize and to set aside Jesus. He's a madman. He's crazy to think that you can lay down your life and take it up again. Insane. There's no way. Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of a blind? Looking back to John chapter 9. And so in this, we have to ask ourselves the question, what will we do with this man named Jesus? We can dismiss him as a madman, as insane, as crazed. Or we can look to him and go, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of a blind? Can a demon, because now we stand on this side of the resurrection, where there is so much evidence and truth behind the resurrection that we look back and go, can a demon rise from the grave? So this morning you have a response. There's always going to be a division on earth about this man named Jesus. But the Bible tells us in Romans 14, chapter 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will confess to God. In that moment, there will be no questions of who he is and what he's done. But here's what I want to warn you about. Jesus has already spoken in previous chapters that if you die in your sins, it's too late. You can be where Jesus is. You can be assured of that today by giving your life to the good shepherd and letting him lead you. Or you can turn from him and seek another way to save your life. There is no other way. So who will you say Jesus is? How will you respond to Jesus? Will you respond to him as the good shepherd? I want you to bow your head and close your eyes and just listen to me for just a few moments. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up. And we're gonna spend the last few moments of our gathering here this morning worshiping and celebrating our good shepherd who is risen. He is the living shepherd to guide us, to direct us to the abundant life. Maybe you're here this morning and you would say, you know what, I don't know that I'm known by the good shepherd. I don't, I don't know that I know the good shepherd, but I want to know the good shepherd and I want to be led by the good shepherd. And here's what I would, would tell you this morning. Being a Christian isn't easy, but becoming one is very simple. Being a Christian isn't easy. Let nobody fool you that living the Christian life is hard, but becoming one is very simple. And I wanna just give you the ABCs of what it means to become a Christian. A, admit that you're a sinner. Admit this morning that you have fallen short of the glory of God. You've fallen short of the standards. You may look to your neighbor and go, I'm a little bit better than him. Well, here's the deal. Your neighbor's not the standard. God is the standard and he is perfectly holy. He is looking for perfection. And you and I, we can never do that. And so we come to God and we admit that we are sinners before him. We admit that we've fallen short. And second of all, we need to be believe. Believe that what Jesus did on the cross counts for me. 
believe that what Jesus died for counted for me, that my sins were actually nailed to the cross. The Bible says that all who call upon the Lord will be saved. And not only are you saved, not only do you get the righteousness of Jesus, but you're adopted into a family and you're given a future hope. And so we admit that we've sinned. We believe that somehow what Jesus did on the cross counts for me. And see, we confess him as Lord and Savior. We simply just confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We confess that he truly is the good shepherd. He's the only shepherd. He's the living shepherd. He's the only one who can get us from this life to the next. He's the only one who comes to give us abundant life. And we need to confess our need for him today. I just want to pray for you. If you've never done that, that this morning would be an opportunity to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Simply put, right there where you are, quietly just pray, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have fallen short of what you require. But Lord, I believe that what Jesus did on the cross counted for me. And I put my faith in that. I don't put my faith in my good works, my efforts, my righteousness. I believe in the righteousness of Jesus. And I confess him right now as Lord and Savior of my life. Amen. Guys, as, uh, as a way of responding this morning, one... If this morning, if you prayed that prayer for the first time with us, one, the Lord hears your prayer, receives your prayer, and says, welcome into the family of God. It's as easy as that. But walking out that faith is where it gets difficult. And we would love to encourage you. We would love to walk alongside you and help you. As my wife Amber mentioned earlier, there's a card there in the seat back. If to, this morning, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, if you've believed and trusted in Jesus, would you just write, needing more information, say, just, I believed in Jesus today. I, I, I said that prayer. And myself and our, or other pastors would love to give a call to you this week and just connect with you and encourage you in how to take next steps in that decision. As we respond this morning, as we sing, as we pray, I want you to know that the front of our room is going to be open for prayer this morning. And I, I get like you're sitting out there and you're like, hey, can't he hear me right here? Absolutely. But there's just something about coming before God our Father and opening our arms and just worshiping him and saying, you are the good shepherd, and I submit my life to you. I want to know you as my shepherd. I want you to lead me to the abundant life. I want you to guide me. I want you to protect me. There is a war that's going on, and I need your help. Help me. Help me. So we're going to sing. There's going to be room, space to be prayed for. There's also going to be people in the front corners here that are available to pray for you. If you're here this morning, just need encouragement. Just, you're, you're struggled. You, you know the struggles that you're facing. You know the pain. You know the difficulties. And you just want to bring that before the Lord. And he knows it, but he loves to hear it from you. He loves to hear your neediness before him and just go, hey, God, can you do something? And he's powerful enough to do it. How do I know that? Because he got up from the grave. 
He's alive. And so we would love to pray for you as well. I want us to stand, let's sing together and give God the praise he deserves. Jesus is alive and our life is forever changed.